The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hey there, John, how are you? Hi, Glenn. Bless you. Glenn Lowry here. This is the Glenn Show at Substack and at YouTube. I'm with John McWhorter, Glenn and John, the Black guys, every other week at the Glenn Show. Glenn Show is sponsored, I should say, by the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research in New York City, where I am John Paulson, Senior Fellow. And um, we're back. We're back from uh, Cambridge, UK. John, mm-hmm. You and I happen to have the experience of jointly participating in a conference over there. You know what I liked about that conference, Glenn, actually, is that, um, of course, it was kind of a self-selected audience, but we weren't weird. You know, it was really <laughs> nice to be in rooms full of black and brown people where almost nobody was giving us the side eye squeezing our hands too hard when they shake, you know, all that little stuff. That people <laughs> like we were, we were okay. And, you know, I don't mean to, I hope this th- isn't wrong to say, I don't want to stereotype or something because there's, this is a delicate issue, but I couldn't help but notice that Nigerians seem to be particularly unlikely to harbor the kind of politics that are sadly so common among black academics and activists in America. And the, I know the Nigerian there, academics that you met in the UK, you speak of now. Them. Yeah. yeah. And it seemed to me that there's something about, you know, people from Nigeria, immigrants from Nigeria, wherever the immigrants go, where their idea is don't change the rules, don't lower standards for me. We know that life isn't fair, but we want to do our best and show what we're made of despite the fact that life isn't perfect. That seems to be a more mainstream attitude. This is also the immigrant mentality in general. I liked being surrounded by that because it's really peculiar how entrenched it has become in black American discourse to say the standards should be changed the rules have to be changed. Standards have to be lowered. How much can you expect from from us, given history, given the fact that life isn't perfect, given the fact that there are certain structural inequalities? How much can you expect change the rules? That's wisdom for us. And I must admit, I love seeing brown-skinned people who don't subscribe to that because I simply cannot, in my heart of hearts, represent that view that standards must be changed. And yet, as we both know, you and me saying that, means that in some quarters we're considered clueless, heartless pigs. But, you know, we're not. And I felt embraced at that conference by by what I thought of as my people in a way that, unfortunately, I sometimes have a hard time doing with Black American people here who insist that we are poster children and that announcing that is a form of enlightenment. That was an extended, passionate statement, John. Spontaneous. Uh, Yeah, I hear you, man. And it's got so much different stuff in it. England is different from America, that's for sure. It is. On the race, on the race question, and you could just go to the demographics of it. Um, the the population of color, the black population, the Afro-African American population here in the United States, uh, does have immigrants in it. I I I would Venture fifteen percent, some number like that. I'm making it up. I don't know the exact number, but in that in that ballpark, depending on what region you're in, it'll be different. But but um, in the in the UK, uh, the the black population is very heavily weighted uh, toward immigrants. But you're making a distinction implicitly between the immigrants from uh, Jamaica and uh, Caribbean. Uh, and the immigrants from uh, West Africa, and, and you're and you're singling out the Nigerians, and you know I'm, I I don't want to contradict you. I think you're you're accurate in in what you're saying, um, and you're also making this point about uh, 
the, uh, I almost want to call it slave mentality. Yeah, that's, that's what it yeah. is. I'm not using that word because it gets misused, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a psychological uh, dimension to it. Uh, so maybe we should explain the Equianos Project. I don't remember the young woman's name who ran it, and I don't have... Inaya Folaren. Uh, very impressive, under 30-year-old um, African-Brit woman of conservative disposition and entrepreneurial inclination who uh, raised money and organized uh, a conference that was in Cambridge uh, University um, at, uh, where was it, at King's and at, what was the other college? Um, we were at King's. We were the Americans. We have no idea where we were. Was it called King's College? King's Bridge? King's, that's where his day two was. Day one, uh, your uh, speech was in... Was that, uh, that other place? Right. Yeah. <laughs> in any case, uh, very uh, nicely appointed accommodations and, uh, you know, venue for uh, like a well-attended conference. The rooms were packed with enthusiastic people. Now, I think we have to say that they are anti-woke. Mm-hmm. They were. And, and I didn't get the feeling that many of them were what... Americans would classify as hard right-wingers, but they just felt that there's been an excess that doesn't make sense. And I want to clarify one thing. There, we heard an awful lot about the difference in performance and attitude between Caribbeans and Africans. That, in my sense, does not apply as much in the United States. And so what I no. just immigrant mentality could apply to somebody from Jamaica, from Ghana. But there, there seems to be a difference between Caribbeans and Africans because Caribbeans have been there much longer. The idea is that the generations have assimilated into a general kind of mindset and are not as fierce about achievement because of the long period of time, whereas Africans are newer. That's what people were telling me there. They had a, a refined breakdown of the different ethnicities. They're South Asians, you know, they're uh, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis. Uh, there's uh, 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 East Asians, there's uh, Irish, there's uh, working class white. Uh, all of this was in the mix. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was an interesting experience. And you gave a keynote address, John. I did. <laughs> Everybody, I, they, I want you to know he did without notes. He just stood up there and talked for I 20 minutes. Genuinely <laughs> had to learn that that's different. I've, I've never understood... I have to put it carefully. I've never quite understood the idea, no offense, of talking to an audience and having a piece of paper sitting there. I figure I'm supposed to look at them. So I just keep it in my, in my head. But the address was, um, I was just basically trying to explain that this hyper-woke way of looking at things is not evil, that it makes a certain kind of sense in the context of modernity. But that it, it has to be reified. It is a thing. It's not just something happening in a few places in academia to a few people. It's, a, it's an ideology that really might change life as we know it in many ways. And I made some points that I've made a lot these days, but I tried to put it in different lights for that talk. And I, I, I felt that it, it, I think it landed. I think people understood what I was trying to say. And a lot of it was just to Avoid the idea that the hyper-woke people, the people I call the elect, are some sort of deliberate menace. I don't think that's constructive. I think we have to try to put ourselves in the heads of people like that. But we have to also understand that the only way to avoid society turning upside down because of their ideology is bravery. That we have to stand up to those people. That you can't hope to have a discussion. That the issue is not hands across the table. How can we productively engage? There's some people you can't productively engage with. And so I tried to also make the point that courage and the courage to be called dirty names in the public square, but to keep doing what you're doing is the only way I can see of keeping people like that from changing what we know as academia, as jurisprudence, and as art. Have to tell those people no, we have to learn. And the more I see that happen, the happier I am, such as this Hamline University episode. What you happened know? to Hamline? At Hamline University, I think it was two weeks ago, a professor showed an image of, um, the, pro of the Prophet Muhammad in a class. Oh, yeah. And she made it clear she was going to do it, told people who may have been offended by it to not look, that you know this was the time to look away, but that she was going to do it. 
And one student complained that, you know, her dignity had been affronted by this. And the university terminated this professor. The professor sued and the university has apparently reversed its course on this. She should have sued. That professor should have done this. And I hate to say it. I hate to say this, but I knew as soon as I read about this, there's probably a racial angle here. I thought this is not going to be a Jordanian immigrant who complained about this. It's a black Muslim. And the president of the university who fired this woman, I, I'm so sorry to have to say it. As soon as I read her name, Fainis, she's a black woman. So there was a race part of this that you've offended me, not just as a Muslim, but as a black person. And many, many Muslims chimed in and said, well, not chimed in, many, many Muslims said, we would not have been offended by this, that this is not yeah. a capital offense to show this image, that I some see. feel that way. And so we need more of that sort of thing. You have to stand up to Fainis, I forget her last name, despite the fact that she's black and a woman and intelligent and charismatic. People like that need to be told no. And I think Hamline was a good sign of, of that sort of thing. That student needs to be told no. Okay, then this was the point you were making at the end of your remarks um, in your uh, keynote address in Cambridge, you know, Courage. And I heard Robbie George, uh, he did a dog and pony with the Cornell West, you know, they go around. Robbie George, the uh, political philosopher at Princeton and Cornell West, the African-American intellectual, uh, he's left and George is right. And they do this thing where they go around and, you know, they say, can't we all get along? And they talk. They say, how can we have a conversation? And uh, they were interviewed on one of the Sunday news shows on, uh, maybe it was on Fox News uh, Sunday or something like that. Yes, yes, I saw it. I watched it. Okay. Um, and uh, George was making the point. He says, you know, political correctness, cancel culture, it's a real thing. But... We have to stand up. And uh, it's a test of character. It, it, it's, it's like a moment of truth. And uh, it's not enough to just whine and complain about they won't let me talk, they won't let me talk. You, you have to put your head on the chopping block. This is Robbie George. And I think this is also John McWhorter. And I think it's right. I think it's right. It, it, there's something almost childlike about woe is me, woe is me, and, you know, screeching and, you know, enumerating the horror cases and then, you know, lamenting the... Uh, Robbie even went so far as to say that if you don't have tenure, that's no excuse. You're still on faculty, you know. Do you remember when we were asked at uh, the heterodox thing in Denver during the Q&A about what do you do if early mm -hmm. in your career, if, you know, you know your department doesn't want to mm -hmm. hear your point of view or whatever? And uh, I think our counsel basically was keep your head down. But uh, Robbie was arguing the opposite of that. There's going to be influence in numbers. It has to be that people feel less alone in standing up for the truth. And the truth isn't anything complicated. But for example, if you don't believe that every disparity between white and black people is due to something called racism, you have to stand up and say it. If you're an academic, you have to stand up and say it. Maybe it's easier if you have tenure, but even if you don't, really assess whether or not it's going to affect your career to stand up and say clearly that this ideology is fourth graders' logic. Because if it doesn't happen, then we're in this strange situation in this society where everybody's pretending to believe something that obviously isn't true. And it's really unhealthy. It's a really sick way of being a society. And I have to bring him up, Kendi. You know, Kendi's ideas on this sort of thing are elementary. And I think a critical yeah. mass of people now see it. If every thinking person in this country still puts that guy's book on their mantelpiece and pretends to agree with his simplistic ideas, something is seriously wrong. The fact that he has dark skin and dreadlocks and a cool African name doesn't mean that you're a racist to call him on flimsy ideas. And I really think okay. that's what's going on at this point. Enough, Kendi. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking about some stuff that's hard to talk about. That Black Lives Matter actually might be costing black lives because the anti-cop attitude has made life in certain communities very difficult. And the people who are paying the price for the increased crime are the black people who are supposed to be the beneficiaries of the advocacy of Black Lives Matter. That's hard to say. And yet it's true. Um, that... <laughs> You know, out of wedlock birth rates, 
abortion rates. I'm talking about African-American, domestic, transgenerational reproductive life, couples staying together, raising kids. Yes, I know that you don't have to be a boy and a girl in order to raise a kid. Okay, I understand that there are many different ways of being a couple. But I'm talking about the social fiber of a community and the capacity of it to reproduce itself effectively across generations. I'm talking about millions of people. I'm talking about culture. I'm talking about values. So, I, you know, that would be another one where uh, you can't talk about it. Uh, what about this fiasco of we can't perform in the academic measures that they use to, dis- to select elites? And then we turn on the instruments of assessment and uh, invoke structural racism instead of getting our acts together, getting off of our asses and developing our human potential. You know, the the scary thing about that is that, once again, you, you have this dialogue that says that the standards have to be changed for us. And then... Someone comes along and indicates that they don't think black people are very smart and they get, you know, thrown out of an airplane. But the thing is, if we keep on insisting that the standards are just too much for us and that we have to change what we think of as achievement, then why wouldn't people start thinking that way? You can't just <laughs> assert, yes, I am as smart as you. That's, that's not good enough. We wouldn't accept it from anybody else. It's kind of like, you know, somebody saying about basketball or jazz or something like that. Yes, I am as good as you, but they never pick up the saxophone, something like that. No, that's not, that's not the way it works. And yet we're supposed to insist that, that that's true. Chandra Prescott Weinstein. Chandra Prescott Weinstein has an interesting article. She's a physicist. Black physicist, half black physicist, I think, whatever. And she has an article that she wrote in 2020 where she argues that physics needs to open up to more diverse points of view because its emphasis upon empiricism is racist, that it bars black people from the field, that there needs to be a different way of doing physics. Now, she doesn't specify exactly what that is, but really with physics, it's just so clean. Either you do it the way it's done or not. There is no other way of doing physics that, you know, will create the kind of insights that we've learned from it. And yet, you know, you're not supposed to call her on it. You're supposed to accept this as higher level thinking. Whereas, of course, everybody and their mothers, you know, standing on the side and thinking, if you're going to do physics, do the physics. If you can do it, well, show us. Don't say that you can. Show us. And then don't say after you've done it, which I presume she has, that your fellow black people don't have to do what you did, that there should be a different way. Let me just interject. Excuse me for interrupting. I just want to interject that um, Sylvester James Gates, Jim Gates, a professor of physics at Brown uh, and emeritus at the University of Maryland, a member of the National Academy of Sciences and a black man, will be my guest next month on The Glenn Show to discuss Mm. exactly this. Oh, good, good. Okay. And, you know, I don't know what his politics are left or right, but I know that he agrees with us about the fact of, you know, physics is physics. You have to do it. Yeah. Simple as that. It's fake. Now, people aren't going to call you on it in public, but it's, it's not real. It's, it's a really dismaying aspect of our general way of conversing. And that's I enjoyed being among the people we were with in Cambridge, where we didn't even have to pretend that anything like that makes sense. It felt like being at a black conference in about 1935. Um, right now I'm doing something that I should have done 30 years ago. I never got to it. I'm reading um, Arnold Rampersad's biography of Langston Hughes. I had never gotten uh, to it, partly because it's two volumes and it always looks kind of uh, intimidating. But I realized, you know, it's time. I, I need to do Langston in a way that I never have. I'm and, old, John. I remember when Arnold Rampersad was writing that book. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Nathan Huggins, the historian, Harlem Renaissance, uh, was my colleague when I was in Afro at Harvard in the early 1980s, and he talked about Rampersad all the time. So it's a damn, it's a damn good book. And the thing that I'm always struck by reading about his era, well, right now I'm in, I'm in the 30s, the 20s and the 30s, is that there was so much less of a sense that you were unblack to, for example, write a sonnet the way white people write a sonnet, that you were unblack 
if you didn't talk in a certain way. There was more of a flexibility, and partly it was because no matter what level of society you occupied, no matter how accomplished you were, you were going to deal with brutal and pitiless racism from whites. So there was no question as to whether you were black or not, no matter how accomplished you were. So I, I get it. But it meant that there was more flexibility within the black community, and there seems to have been much less of a sense that in order to be celebrated, you needed to argue that standards needed to be changed. You, you weren't, the white establishment wasn't interested in knuckling under to that. And it's maybe the one thing that I would enjoy about living in that time, that there was much less of that idea that the essence of enlightened black Americanness is to insist that what's considered excellence be changed for you. No. Langston Hughes wouldn't have understood that, and I enjoy that part of his And neither would W.E.B. Du Bois have understood. Not at all. No, no. Uh, these, uh, these guys and gals, uh, who were, they wanted to play the real game. They, they, they wanted to actually be in the mix, in the, in the real game. Now, there were very few, mm -hmm. but uh, they, they knew what the real game was. Yeah, and you know, it's not as if Hughes wasn't changing the art form. He's writing a vernacular kind of poetry. He's getting away from what, say, Alain Locke thought of as poetry. And so all of that is fine. He is changing the form of art, but he wasn't arguing that it was supposed to be easier. He worked just as hard as somebody writing a sonnet on his poems. The idea wasn't, let's dumb it down because what we black people are about is spontaneity and heat. No, he, he, wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have gotten that. And as such, okay. whenever I read about these people, these Harlem Renaissance heroes, Du Bois, yeah. Locke, um, um, I'm having a brain shut out, um, Hughes, Claude yeah. McKay, Wallace Thurman. And you don't want Walt to forget Hitler. the woman who was the anthropologist uh, and uh, Zora Neale Hurston. None of those people would, they are people, a lot of today's enlightened black thinkers could not get through dinner with most of those people, including Zora, because she was a black conservative, couldn't get through dinner. They'd be thinking, oh, let me sit down and talk to girlfriend. They'd be thinking, oh, I'm going to sit at the feet of Wallace Thurman. But what those people thought of as standards, what those people thought of as achievement, what those people thought of as the Harlem Renaissance would really rankle a lot of people today who see themselves as representing black authenticity. And I hate to say that in some ways, today's black orthodoxy is advanced. I can see, I can see that. They were, the, these old timers were blinkered in some ways. But in other ways, I think there was a self, well, I'm not, I don't know who doesn't love themselves, but those people were secure Excuse in me. their skin in a way. I'm sorry, I was about to ask whether after the advent of black studies, was part of a step in the wrong direction away from engaging with the the very best of whatever the field is that you might be at the highest level and instead having your own separate uh, track. I mean that to be a question or hypothesis, not, not a conclusion, but I, I, I think it's at least worth entertaining. Yeah, I think um, that idea that what the blackest thing to do is to smoke out evidence of racism, that you build an identity around that. Unfortunately, my impression is that black studies departments focus on that. Now, I don't know. Really, to say it, you would have to do a study of probably about 100 of them. But my impression, based on, for example, having been a member of one of them at UC Berkeley for about 10 minutes, 30 years ago, and, you know, nosing around, my sense is that those programs tend to be centered on racism. Like, it would be one thing if they were really interested in exploring blackness in general, where racism would be maybe one out of ten things focused on. Oh. I get the feeling that's not true, and that most of those departments are called black studies, but what they're really about is identifying and exploring discrimination and racism. And that that's is a very, narrow, that's a very narrow subject. Yeah, I mean, that may be the case that I don't know, a Cal State Fullerton or something like that. I wonder whether or not it's the case at a Harvard or a Yale or... Princeton. And I mean, I know, you know, having taught in a black studies department way, way, way back in the, in the early 80s, there are serious people. Mm -hmm. um, my, co my colleague, the late Nathan Huggins historian, was a very serious historian. Uh, my colleague at that time, Werner Solers, uh, a German national uh, literature guy, very serious guy. Um, so I, you know, uh, but <laughs> that's probably not true of every 
uh, of every Black Studies department. The students are going to be playing some kind of role in what the department is doing. And the very mm-hmm. idea that the racial identity comes into the pedagogy causes me a little bit, you know, I'm saying we're, we're there to educate kids at the college. And when you partition it off, it's like you think there's some kind of racial epistemology, you know, if there's something to know that's a kind of Black way of knowing and a Black way of learning and things like that, rather than to integrate the themes of uh, race and uh, Black history and uh, literature and art and um, music and whatnot into the into the curriculum more more broadly. I mean, American studies makes all kinds of sense to me. Mm-hmm. And it's where you learn a, a synthetic, a synthesizing way of thinking. I mean, the, one would have to do a study. I did a very, very small one, I think about 15 years ago, where I looked at the syllabi of a couple of Black Studies departments. And that's not a study, but... What I found, and I, and I wrote about this, um, people can look it up in City Journal, and what I found was that this, it's not that the people weren't intelligent, it's not that the scholars were undertrained or something like that, but the whole curriculum was based on racism rather than race. There were some exceptions, but it was clear that the mission of this Black Studies program was to teach people about discrimination. And I just said, that's not enough. That's not a real subject. It's, it's too small. And also, of course, all of the black thinkers who were given any real play were on the left. You know, there's nothing about black people who think differently, and I'm not talking about myself, but you would think that there was only one black way to think. That's not right. It's not true that there are only two black conservatives and both of them are crazy. And yet you wouldn't have known that from this this program. So, yeah, and I what wonder whether think, that... Excuse me. What, I was going to ask you about Greg Thomas, who was on with us, I think, the last time we... We we appeared live. Um, that he is uh, the uh, jazz leadership uh, project uh, director and has an affiliation with the Institute for Ev- Cultural Evolution. Um, and he was, t- uh, you know, it was deracialization. That that's what he was talking about. I mean, we're talking about black this, black that, and black the other. And one way of going would be to just say, you know, race is a subsidiary, a way down the line subsidiary of what your major category should be, um, and a kind of de-emphasis on race versus, you know, because I'm, I, I'm proud to be able to announce to the world that um, the memoir draft is complete and it's going into the publisher at the end of the month. Okay, so uh, <laughs> and congratulations. Uh, in there, I'm, one, Thank you very much. Thank you. One of the things I'm grappling with there is my own blackness. You know, it's it's my, which is kind of challenged by what Greg was saying, you know, and what Shelby Steele is saying and what Camille Foster is saying and, and others, you know, about the fictional, uh, what the uh, uh, Fields sisters in Racecraft, Karen and um, Barbara. And Barbara. Um, which is it's a fiction. It's it's a kind of it's a fantasy. You don't want to lose yourself in it. You 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 don't want to define yourself by it. You don't want to limit yourself to it. Uh, you know, it's it's really more a source of mischief. I mean, Shelby is very explicit about this. He says uh, it's it's uh, corruption. You know, he says you never see race except but that you see a play for power. Uh, people are using it as a way of trying to weasel. And and uh, it's it's uh, it's it's just malicious. It's bad. Uh, and I I don't think that. And I'm I'm you know a man and a black man, an economist and a black economist. You know, a, a conservative and a black conservative. And is there something about where I'm from and who I am that's rooted in my blackness and you know, I mean, what Thomas would say, if he were here, I'm pretty sure, is, look, you came up on the south side of Chicago. I came up where I came up with. These were black communities. They played, you know, Duke Ellington and Dizzy Gillespie and, you know, and John Coltrane and Miles Davis and whatever they played. And that's culture, but that's not race. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm trying to ask a question, John. What do you think about all of that? You know... I keep swatting that question away 
whether we should get past race. I'm always, I'm, I always think there are other things we need to think about, and I just swat it away. And I can tell that that question is now coming up so often with so many people and means so much to so many people that I need yeah. to stop swatting it away. The way I see it, it's about Donna, that, that archetype that we created a few shows ago. Donna is about 50. She's black. She thinks of the cops as a defining part of black experience. She thinks of racism and microaggressions as the defining part of black experience. Donna is very bright. Donna reads. But Donna is just sitting with her arms crossed listening to us. And I, I'm often thinking, how do you reach Donna? You know, just one thing at a time where Donna might gradually understand that there are ways of looking at race beyond this victim-focused mentality. It seems to me that it's more plausible to get Donna to think, I'm black, but I can do what everybody else does, and it's my responsibility to tell my children that, and that I'm black, but not defined by victimhood in any way that really deserves being talked about, than to tell Donna, you're not really black, you're just a person. I don't think Donna can hear that at all. Her sense of herself as a black or rather not white person is so deeply seated that there would be no way to affect it. Rather, I want to tell Donna, yes, you're black, but please stop exaggerating. That's hard enough. But I can see that I understand that we need to get past this, that the whole race thing makes no real sense. Never has. We should get past it. But goodness, that would be hard to get by Frankly, most black American people, nobody wants to hear that. Too many black American people hear that and think that what you're saying is that there's something wrong with being black. And it's such a deep-seated reflex that I figure I want to step around that. But I need to think about it more. Because Camille and Greg and everybody else are correct. We do need to get over this conception we have of race. It's, it's wonderful trying to explain it to somebody from somewhere else for example, you know, the European person who says, but you're not black. You know, black mm -hmm. is Kanye West or a rapper or somebody from Nigeria. You're in between and you have to say, no, in America, there is no in between. I'm black. But look at your mother. She was light skinned. She was black. Yes. She identified as black. She didn't like white. None of it makes any sense. I know. But we're stuck. I with have it. to, I have to teach a course this summer at the University of Austin, UATX. Uh, yeah, we ought to get you out there, John. Uh, are okay. you? Are you? You know, one of these days. Uh, forbidden courses, they call it. It's a one-week seminar that you do with a handful of kids, 15, 20 kids. I don't know, however many sign up. And you know, we're gonna. I'm gonna lecture, and, and we're gonna discuss. Uh, I have to figure out what exactly the curriculum of it is gonna be. But I think I'm gonna start out by asking them, "What is race?" You know. Mm -hmm. and trying to deal with that. I have my ideas. I mean, it's, it's uh, categorization and signification. That's my little formula. Race mm. is categorization. You can see different uh, exogamy, you know, different uh, physiognomy, shape of bones in the face, color of the skin, texture of the hair, the thickness of the lips. You can see these things at a glance, and so you can differentiate. And I think we do that in a very evolutionary, sound, uh, understandable way of, of navigating that way through the world, that we take notice of these kind of things. But the signification part is the part, you know, where the categories have meanings or interpretations or connotations associated with them. And um, I'll stop because this is not a lecture on what is race, but I'm, that, that's a hint of the direction I'm trying to go in. Yeah, I think um, it's a sad thing. A lot of what makes a lot of people hold on to this concept of race is that there's a certain comfort in exaggerating your victimhood if you're not really a victim, which is something I mentioned in at the conference in Cambridge. There's a comfort in it. It's an identity. It gives you a of purpose and membership and even a kind of nobility. But it's not. It's not real, and it's not. It's not progressive. It's a very modern peculiarity, that identity. Yeah, and I must admit, I came back from the conference a little bit depressed in, in that way, just to be around so many Black people who have no interest in pretending that they're victims. And it's... Now, you know, most of, 
Most of them were Tories, John. <laughs> That's interesting. I didn't <laughs> talk to them about that. They were members of the Conservative Party. Do you know that? I, I suspect it strongly. I know that uh, Lord Tony Sewell, mm-hmm. uh, who was uh, one of the participants in the conference and who oversaw a large study of disparities by race and ethnicity oh, yeah. in the UK, right? Uh, that he was uh, appointed to the House of Lords or elevated, I suppose you have to say, to the House of Lords uh, at the behest of the conservative prime minister of the country. Uh, and I... I strongly suspect, not all of them, of course, not maybe not even most of them, but a significant number of them were what we would call Republicans. Yeah, and part of it is because they don't subscribe to a certain kind of ideology. Now, Republican, I think there is not Republican here. But yeah, you would, you would expect that. You know, there's, a, there's more of a diversity of views among Black people there than here in terms of political affiliation. That's the point I'm trying to make. And I I think that's one of the reasons why you felt so comfortable there, why it was even possible to have that conference in such a high venue uh, mm-hmm. place with such quality people mm-hmm. uh, was that uh, the landscape is different over there. Uh, the non-white population is not uniformly on the left. Mm-hmm. It's the way it should be, frankly. It makes them more powerful politically than we often are here, for example. But you have to be a Democrat. Well, I know a lot of our audience is mad at me for being a Democrat. They think that I resist being a Republican just because I want to make nicey with the people on the left, which is not the case. But I am a Democrat now because of especially problems with the Republican Party as it is. But the fact that we all vote Democratic, essentially, is a problem. It's considered okay because to vote Democratic is to show that you understand that racism exists. You know, the Republicans are racist. Present company accepted. I, I, yeah, know. right. But, you know, if you vote Republican, it means that you don't understand racism and so you're disloyal. But that means that, you know, we end up being powerless in many ways. It's a shame, but we're stuck with it. Guys, hate to break it to you, but when she reacts to your holiday gift with honey, you shouldn't have. Not necessarily a good thing. So I have two awesome gift suggestions and a special offer from Cozy Earth, the brand with thousands of five-star reviews, including mine. My first suggestion, Cozy Earth Luxury Bedding. This is some good stuff. I've used it myself. It's very soft and comfortable. Cozy Earth Bedding is made using the finest premium viscose from highly sustainable bamboo. Their bedding is naturally temperature regulating, so they'll sleep comfy all year round. I sure do. Here's my second suggestion. Cozy Earth's luxurious loungewear collection from their ultra soft lounge pants, tees, and pajamas for women to their popular joggers, pullover crews, and hoodies for men. Cozy Earth loungewear is designed to flatter every body type. And check out their premium plush and waffle bath towels. They'll love those too. Plus, every Cozy Earth bedding item comes in a beautiful, reusable canvas bag. No gift wrapping required. It's really easy. Save 40% now on Cozy Earth bedding, loungewear, pajamas, and towels. Hurry, the holiday offer ends soon. Go to CozyEarth.com forward slash Glenn. And be sure to enter Glenn, G-L-E-N-N, at checkout to save 40%. That's CozyEarth.com forward slash Glenn. Did you see the images of Joseph Biden in Raphael Warnock's church, the same church, Ebenezer Baptist in Atlanta, that King had been pastor of? No. Did you see any of those photos? No. What was it? What was it? <laughs> so it was, it was, this thing has like got like a million views on Twitter. Uh, it's uh, Biden up in the front where 
the choir is in full-throated ecstatic celebration of, you know, the of the religious thing. It's a black church. They're swaying, they're they're belting out. And and uh Biden is kind of standing there like a deer looking into the headlights, like kind of stunned, like I mean, he's wandering about on the stage. My description is not generous. I will acknowledge that. But I don't think it's inaccurate. Uh, and felt it looked like he felt very uncomfortable. I mean, mm. I don't necessarily expect an 80-year-old man to start moving with the beat or anything like that. But And he has said that he spent a lot of time in black churches when he was coming along. But mm-hmm. it definitely didn't show. It didn't look it, like it. Yeah. It, why funny. do I raise that? Because we're talking about race and politics and black people and Democrats. And uh, I want to call attention to the exploitation of the uh, uh, base by uh, politicians who have their own interests. I'm talking about President Biden in this particular case, cultivating a kind of uh, intimacy or connection to the blackness of the thing, which is just an affect. It's just... You know, it's just show. There's nothing really of any kind of substance that's there. And a person could take offense at that. Mm-hmm. A person could feel like they were being patronized mm-hmm. by that. Or, you know, <clears throat> that what's that thing he said? That if you're you're voting for Trump, you ain't black? Did he, did he put yeah, it? Yeah, that's a famous thing. He said that on The Breakfast Club with uh, Charlemagne mm-hmm. the God. Yeah, that's that that won't do really. Right down to the affectation of the vernacular, in that way. That was put y'all back in chains. They they're gonna put y'all back in chains. That, that was another Biden. Yep. Thing. Jim Crow two about <laughs> Georgia. I don't know if you're prepared to admit it, but I think the jury is in on that now, man. I mean, I think that that was uh, canard. You know, black people got to vote in Georgia in significant numbers. Yep. So yep. it's a shame. Uh, I'm going to put a black woman on the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. We talked about that. I mean, yes, I think that we, we, yes, there yes. sometimes symbolism has a value. And the issue is just whether or not she was qualified. And she was. And so I was I was in favor of that as long as standards were not changed. And so, yeah. She's there. I just picked up. I just picked up Harvard Magazine where Claudine Gay has become the new president of the university, the first black person and black woman to be president of Harvard University. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, people are talking about how what a great scholar she is and whatnot. And I know that there are people who think that <laughs> not really, not really a great scholar. It might be a great a lot of things, but not not really a great scholar. And you know, I kind of am inclined to agree with them. But after a certain point. <laughs> you know, uh, you can't, I mean, questioning the qualification of Katanji Brown Jackson. I mean, suppose you would actually go over it with a fine tooth comb the way they did with Clarence Thomas. <laughs> but I mean, we, that, that was, you discussed. might find something, but you, you dare not speak of it. You dare not speak of it. Just like I dare not try to Claudine Gay's CV and do a kind of, you know, look at that lightweight article there and look at that, you know, whatever. And there's no there, there. I dare not do that. I didn't do it. I don't know. As we said before, I am open to the idea that having a really slam dunk, serious CV is maybe not that important to the job. However, then you responded, and it was valuable, that there are ways in which having been a really hard hitting and experienced academic does apply to aspects of the job that she's supposed to do. In which case, if that's true, I am disappointed that the black person chosen for that job is one who clearly, I don't think this is a, this isn't a judgment. Her academic history is not spectacular. It's, it's okay, but it's not spectacular. I'm disappointed that that is what they chose compared to Drew Gilpin Faust or Larry Summers or Derek Bach. It's, it, it makes me a little uncomfortable. Well, on the other side of it, a person could say, look, the job is very complicated. It has a lot of different pieces and there are more than one player involved. There's the deans and then there's the provost and whatever. And um, it may be that one kind of uh, college president, a Larry Summers type, might take a more hands-on with respect to the vetting of, you know, who's going to get the chair in European history or whatever. 
But another type of college president might delegate that to the provost and take a more hands-off, but be good at fundraising and appealing to various stakeholders and constituencies. So, I, you know, I mean, you can make a case that, they, I mean, this goes to the bedrock point where people say, you, what's qualification? And then the debate becomes about what does it mean to be qualified? And, you know, you can kind of bend that and twist that in a lot of different directions. John, I want to ask you about what you're writing at the New York Times these days. We have maybe another 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. Um, the last thing I wrote was um, one of the musical theater pieces. I wanted to write about the fact that the sound of Broadway music, the, the substrate of it, I think was created with the success of a Black written and Black performed musical in 1921 called Shuffle Along. And if you read mainstream histories of how the American musical was created, you can get an idea that George Gershwin gave Broadway music a jolt of jazz in 1924 with a musical called Lady Be Good. And after that, Broadway music kind of snaps along. And the problem with that is that jazz, in that sense, had hit Broadway three years before with this black musical Shuffle Along. And it was after that that white writers started writing a different kind of music. And I think that that's been missed, partly because black musical theater tends to be treated as this side issue and is not studied as hard by the people who do mainstream musical theater history as it should be. And I've always kind of thought, because I'm strange, because I love the Gershwin stuff, but also I'm very interested in what the black people were creating at the same time, I thought, really, this is all one thing. And the black side of this was important. It was, it was seminal. I've never known whether that word was seminal or seminal. I'd rather it be seminal. So I'm going no, to say it's seminal. seminal. It's definitely not be, seminal. Let's not have it. Yeah. So seminal. <laughs> and so I just thought that I would help tell that story that it starts with U.B. Blake and Noble Sissel. And then people like George Gershwin and Vincent Newman's pick up on it. It's not that there were these hot black musicals happening up the street that was a whole story of their own. So I just wanted to say that to a big audience. So that's what okay. my Shuffle Along played on Broadway. Mm-hmm. It was a Broadway show. How long did it run? Do you know? It ran a year and a bit, which was very long then. You know, shows didn't run for 15 years then. If it ran a it year was a and black a bit, show? Huge hit. Black show, black, pian black pianist wrote the music, black singer wrote the lyrics, all black chorus, all black comedians, and it stopped traffic. It ran, I think it ran 524, long run for 1921. Was it bluesy and, and, and uh, jazzy or ragtime or whatever? Jazzy. Was the Jazzy, early jazzy, you know, hot stepping. You know, and if we watched it today, it would look kind of like post-ragtime. Jazz has gotten hotter since. But this was people, you know, balling the jack and, you know, singing the blues, as they called it then, which, you know, the gospel barely existed. So it wasn't like that. But it was early jazz. And to people back then, this was this was blowing the roof off. And you know, there are little things like stereotyping meant that the people in the pit orchestra had to not use music when they played, because the idea was that black people just make music spontaneously. So the people <laughs> in the pit had to play from memory, but apparently it was a blazing pit. And just it's an interesting story. And it's funny, Blake and Sissel spent the rest of their careers trying to recreate Shuffle Along, which never quite uh, worked. But in 1921 and 1922, that thing made history. And I wanted... So, so I, I Gershwin was influenced by, the, by this show. Hmm? You say Gershwin... He uh, was it. influenced. And partly, it's that the music all changes after the show. And so it's clear that there's some sort of causal relationship. And Gershwin really liked black jazz pianists, sat at their feet, learned tricks from them, had an interest in black music in particular. And so he was definitely watching this sort of thing. And his music before 1924 doesn't sound like it does after 1924. And it's about shuffle along. What, uh, what characterized the black piano style of that period, the early 20s? Was it stride uh, bass? Uh, right. The big giant leaping stride bass and then active filigrees and four four note chords up on the top playing against each other in the ragtime way but more densely more complex played faster it was a very athletic style of playing the easiest way of hearing it is fats waller because he recorded so much and he was recorded so well but there were actually stride players who were even better than him who could really just tear up 
the piano. Also, Art Tatum does a lot of it. You can listen to him in modern stereo recordings, what he's doing with his left and his right hand. But that goes back, that's something that was going on in the early 20s, and Gershwin was amazed he could play that way. There are recordings of him playing the piano that way. And all of it starts, he gets hot when black Broadway gets hot. And that's something that you never quite see put forth in the mainstream musical theater histories. And if you want to say it's racism, you could call it a kind of racism. I think it's it's a racism of neglect. But that story needs to be told more organically. So I figured I'd use the times. There's a new book about Shuffle Along that um, just came out. It's called When Broadway Was Black. There was a hardback edition last year. There's a paperback this year. I missed the hardback. Found out about the paperback and realized, wait a minute, let's say something. But uh-huh. the guy who wrote its name is Kasim. Let me get it right. I'm going to open openly. I'm going on to social media. His name is Kasim. Kasim. Just wait. Gaines. Get the name. Say it again. Kasim Gaines. So. Okay. He wrote a good book. All right, John, we've taken enough of your time. Thank you. Uh, we'll talk again in a couple of weeks, and uh, I'll be in touch about the Q&A. Definitely. Have a good one, Glenn. Hey, congrats on the memoir, too. You long time it. coming, man. Sure. Yeah, I know. Long time coming. Now we just have to deal with the aftermath because the degree of uh, revelation and self-exposure is so severe. <laughs> I tell the reader, (laughs) this is the last I'm going to say of this. I tell the reader at the outset, there's no reason for you to believe anything I tell you in this book, because after all, I'm writing it and I'm writing it about myself. And I would, you know, want to make the story nice and rosy. Why should you believe anything I say? The only way I'm going to get you to believe anything I say is by telling you stuff that no one would want anybody to think about them was true, but that's true about me. And in doing so... I will earn your credibility so that when crunch time comes and I really need you to believe me, maybe I'll have some credibility with you. Mm-hmm. I deliver I deliver on that promise. I want to see this. <laughs> Just hold on. I'm coming. It's okay. <laughs> Take care. Signing off. Okay. See you soon, Glenn.